Our text for today is found in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And if you'd like to follow along with me as I read the text, you'll find a Bible in the pew in front of you in that little shelf, or use your own Bible. Romans 8, 1 through 12. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are accorded to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, Yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. Father in heaven, as we come to your word now, I pray for help to speak it with faithfulness truthfulness, love, with that special kind of spiritual anointing that would bear fruit in quickening and wakening and conviction and persuasion and faith. I pray for those who hear that they would have strength to listen and that you would help them to be alert and attentive and that Obstacles to understanding would be removed and that a fair hearing would be got for the claims of the Bible. Draw near now and let there be a spiritual transaction in this room that would have eternal effect for joy and hope. Protect us right now from the evil one He's a liar and a murderer from the beginning, Jesus said. And he prowls around like a roaring lion, trying to devour faith and to keep people from hearing, understanding, blinding the minds of unbelievers, Paul said. Would you grant a great blow against him right now? Deliver minds that he has gripped for a long time, perhaps. And may he have no sway or freedom in this room. In Jesus' mighty and powerful name I pray. Amen. 
I wonder what you would answer to the question, what are the big obstacles in America to hearing and understanding the gospel? That is, the basic truths of Christianity, that there's a great, holy, sovereign God, that we are sinners, there's a rupture between God and man, there's Christ, the Son of God, who lived perfectly, died for sinners, that faith can lay hold on this Christ, can find forgiveness, can find eternal life. That great constellation of biblical truths called the gospel. What in America today keeps people from seeing it, understanding it, recognizing it as beautiful and necessary, and embracing it? I wonder what the list would look like if we made a list right now of what those obstacles are. Some of you might say, ignorance. People just don't even know the Bible in America. I mean, there was a day when America was kind of a Bible place, but not anymore. There are people who never seen a Bible. They don't know the stories. They don't know the facts. That'd be one possible answer. Another one might be, well, some know the facts, but they see them as having no possible proof. There's no way you can... Prove it. It happened too long ago. There's too many possibilities for distortion in the meantime. And so they just throw up their hands and say, this is, this is a hopeless cause here to come to conviction about something that happened so long ago. Or somebody else might say, if you claim that there's a holy God and a good God in heaven and Patty suffered like she suffered, I don't get it and I can't buy it. There's too much suffering in the world for God to be what you say He is. Or somebody else might say, one of the reasons Americans don't believe is because we are so harried as a people. We are distracted with anxieties and we want pleasures continually. We want stimulation and very, very few Americans pause in silence to even ask, let alone answer an ultimate question. Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Is there a holy God? Will my sin that I know is there because my conscience gets me from time to time do me in when I die? We just, just kind of keep those questions out because who can answer them anyway? And besides, they mess up my life and can't enjoy things so much when I think about them. And so that's one reason why we don't believe is because there's no time and there's no inclination and we're just driven people. And the last one I would mention before I get to the one I want to work on is a lot of people would say, I've watched those kind of people who say they believe in that constellation you talk about and they're jerks. And there's a lot of people who say that and see that and maybe there's too much truth to it. Now, the reason I ask this question is real practical, it's real personal this morning. Um, I want to persuade you this morning that Christianity is true. This is huge, right? Let's just do this. I, I want to so speak this morning that some of you are persuaded about that constellation of truth. A great holy God created this world. 
We are sinners and separated from this great holy God in big trouble under his just and holy wrath. He sent his son to rescue people from his own judgment. And Jesus died. He raised him from the dead. That's why there's an Easter. And if we believe him, we can have eternal life. That, that's the gospel. I would like so to speak this morning that some of you who don't now believe that, will believe it. Now that's a huge challenge. I don't think a human, in fact, can do it. It's God's work, ultimately. But here's what I have in mind to do with you for the next 20 minutes or so. I think God calls preachers and others to so think and talk that you try to move out of the way obstacles to serious consideration of the claims of this book. One of the reasons people don't get very far with the truth that's in here is because there are all kinds of hindrances and barriers out here so that very few people even give it a listen to, let alone a very earnest, passionate, is it so, a crying out to the God if he's there and a studying it out. So if I, if I could this morning just have a little piece in what God is doing in the whole mosaic of your life. This is the way I view all of your lives. This is not your life this morning. This is a little piece of your life. And so I get a chance for about 30 minutes to take a little piece of truth as I see it, and I believe it's absolute ultimate truth, and put it on the canvas of your life. Put the claim of truth right there. Now God's been doing that for what? For some of you? Three years, and for some of you, 93 years. And my prayer is that if I could so speak as to blow the, the fog of confusion and obstacles away, you might start or maybe finish this morning recognizing that on that mosaic of your life is the face of Jesus Christ. That's what the pieces have been meaning. That's what that meant. That's what that meant. That's what that meant. It's all coming together, and it's not... Chaos and stupidity and confusion anymore. God's been after me to say, Christ is real. That could happen this morning or could happen in two years. If God gives you time because I put a little piece in there. Now, the obstacle that I want to get out of the way this morning or at least expose it so that you can decide realistically if you want to get it out of the way, is not any of that list that I gave a minute ago, but another one that's real pervasive in American culture that I think makes understanding Christianity almost impossible, and that is a pervasive relativism. Now let me talk with you a few minutes about what I mean and where I see it. And the question you should be asking right now at this point is, is that there like he says it's there? And if it's there, has it gotten into me? And if it's gotten into me, what's the effect on the way I view reality? And is that a good effect? That's the question I want you to ask. Because I think if you'll ask that series of questions, you will find a window opening on your mind that is right now perhaps very tightly closed because of the ill effects of relativism. Let me give you some illustrations of what I mean, rather than just kind of a theoretical definition. It's only half a joke. Half a joke. Abraham and I were talking about this. He said, that's a joke. You can't tell that as fact. I said, okay, it's a joke. 
It's only half a joke. Because I think I talked to somebody last week in relationship to somebody in their company where it wasn't a joke. And the joke is, which is only half a joke, that there are places where to get a job, they might ask you, what's two plus two? And the right answer will be, what do you want it to be? And you get the job. That's relativism. There is no absolute standard, objectively outside of your own desires, to which you must bring your life into conformity. Rather, in relativism, you are absolute, and you shape what is outside of you to fit what you want. That's relativism. That's what I mean is pervasive in American culture. And where it is pervasive, Christianity is almost unintelligible. Let me give you another illustration. About four years ago or so, I think it was 1993 and 94, these things were playing on television. There were pro-life ads sponsored by the DeMoss Foundation, little 30-second things, and uh, they came on, little baby, is real cute, and, and the line was, life, a beautiful choice. You may remember that. Life, a beautiful choice. Now, the world view behind that little slogan is life has value. Outside of whether I think it has value or whether I make it have value, it's out there. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Life is one of them. Liberty is one of them. Life is out there. You bring your life into conformity to the value of life. You kill people because you want to. You're going to change your desires if you want to kill somebody. You conform to the reality of the value. In New York, 1994, NARAL, the abortion advocacy group, developed and put on television an alternative little 30-second ad. And they did a little switcheroo, and it went, Choice, a beautiful life. And then uh, one commentator said that it went, I didn't see these, so I'm just giving this second hand from a commentary I read, said uh, the ad centers on personal preferences in areas like food, religion, hairstyles, and then segues into whether you have a baby or whether you have an abortion. Now, um, Roger Lundine is a professor of literature at Wheaton College, and he wrote about this, and, and he commented wryly, and Chinese food or French cuisine, Jesus or Nostradamus, permed or straight, life or death, they're all the same. Whatever tool you choose to use to enhance your own well-being does not matter only your freedom in choosing matters. Choice, you see, is not objectively filled with any content. It's like saying motion is the absolute. <laughs> Which way? 
Well, any way you want. And so when you define choice, which is any way you want, as an absolute, there is no absolute. And therefore the only governing possibilities is totalitarianism, the will to power. If we all don't agree upon a standard that we will bring our lives into conformity to, the powerful win. That's all you have is power. Um, Gertrude Himmelfarb is a emeritus professor of history at City University of New York. And she wrote an article called Tradition and Creativity in History Writing back in 92. And the amazing thing about this article was to document how this pervasive relativism is in virtually every field of knowledge. It's called today in the echelons postmodernism. In literature, she says, there's no objective meaning that gives an author any superior right over what he said to give its meaning than the reader. Or there's no any, uh, there's no standard by which a great book can be said to be superior to a comic book. Milton and Superman. In law, there's no standard. The Constitution is not brought into conformity to what the founders of our country intended. It is given its meaning by judges or by what society at the moment needs. Philosophy. Language, words don't correspond to reality. Language doesn't faithfully describe things. Rather, language creates things. It's not the servant of truth. It is an instrument of power. History, you make it what you want. You rewrite it according to your agenda and your group. And politics comes way too close to home for all of us because... You can imagine recently hearing things like sexual relationship. What's that mean? Well, what do we need it to mean? What do we need it to mean? The very existence of spin doctor. I mean, the very term means truth is a wax thing. You you don't bring your life into conformity to it. You don't yield to it. You don't bow to it. You don't shape yourself around it. You look around to see what your personal preferences and needs are, and then you bend it to shape what you want, and then you spit it out. And if you're good at it, if you're good with language, you can have your own way indefinitely. Now, how serious is this? I don't, um, I don't talk about this because I have any particular philosophical or political interest this morning. I'm very, very desirous that you are enabled to see Christianity for what it is. How important is this? Michael Novak, who's not even a Christian, said in when he received the Templeton Prize of, for the Progress of Religion back in 94, he said, Relativism is an invisible gas, odorless, deadly, that is now polluting every free society on earth. It is a gas that attacks the central nervous system of the moral striving. The perilous threat to the free society today is therefore neither political nor economic. It is the poisonous 
corrupting culture of relativism. Now he's talking about society. I'm talking about Christianity and the same is true. Wherever this poisonous gas of relativism takes hold on a man, the claims of Christianity cannot be considered for what they are. Because they are claims to absolute reality. And my passion this morning is that these things be seen for what they are. I don't, I don't really care very much about politics. I don't care very much about philosophy. But inasmuch as these things relate upon whether minds are being closed and shut to the most glorious truths in the world, and whether we are cultivating a culture where 11-year-olds do mass killings, matters to me. That didn't come out of nowhere, folks. I remember reading a Jewish philosopher who said the ovens of Dachau and Auschwitz did not come from political maniacs in Berlin. They came from the desks and lecture halls of nihilistic philosophers. In other words, before there is action, there are ideas or the destruction of ideas, or to be very plain, truth matters about your kids and your grandkids. It matters about your own life. Truth really matters. And so my passion this morning, the reason I've spent half this message, more than half, on just delineating a huge obstacle to truth is in the hopes that maybe right now, some of you who haven't thought about this as much would be saying, wow, no, I do see that. I see it on the news. I see it in advertising. I see it in the newspaper. I see it like in schools. I see this abandonment of standards and this abandonment of absolutes and this elevating of diversity to the point where you can't say anything is better than anything else. And so why not shoot? I mean, it's a plain conclusion that a kid would draw if his standards are as good as anybody else's. And I really care about whether or not right now at this moment in the service you are able to hear the last ten minutes. And my prayer is that you will. So I'm just going to now in maybe a little window that God has created for the truth. I want to make some biblical statements. I just want to kind of lift up truth as the Bible holds it out to you and plead with God and with you that you would hear. Number one, Jesus Christ is an eternal being with God and equal with God. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Consider that this morning. The biblical claim of those who knew him to say, this man was God. Second truth. That eternal Christ who was equal with and was God became man. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Or the way the Apostle Paul put it was, in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, if that's true, it's a fact that happened once for all. There was a man, Jesus Christ, who lived, who loved, who dandled children on his knee, who touched lepers, who taught. We need the children to help us at this moment because children are pretty down-to-earth, common-sense human beings. So children, listen carefully here and, and realize how your perspective on things is important. There are philosophers who, in dealing with history, will say that we make history. We don't objectively discern history. We shape the past as we work on it in our history books. Now, kids, what happened yesterday? Let's think about it. Yesterday you got up, and yesterday you ate, and yesterday you played. Can you do anything today that will change what you did yesterday? No, she's shaking her head. That's right. That's the right answer. You can't. God can't. Facts that are past remain past facts. The significance that they have in your life can change all over the place as you walk into the future. But that thing that happened yesterday is as rock, ironclad, solid as anything you can imagine. If Jesus was real, He's real. Facts are facts. Jesus lived. Third truth. This divine incarnate Son of God died for sins. 1 Corinthians 15.3 I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The death of Christ was as real as Patty's death. However, it had a meaning that hers didn't have, and that meaning was not created or invented by the apostles. It had a meaning that was objectively designed for it and put upon it by God. And the reason we know that is because 700 years and more before it happened, God was talking to prophets in such a stunning way that when it came to pass, and this Jesus fulfilled so many of these prophecies, you knew what it was about. For example, Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. That's real modern. That's real relativistic. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. That's relativism. We've turned everyone to his own way 2,700 years ago. And the Lord has laid on him, that is God the Father, laid on the Messiah, his son Jesus, the iniquity of us all. That's the meaning of the death. Given 700 years before it happened. The death of Jesus is a sin-bearing death. Fourth truth, he rose bodily from the grave and is alive today. The grave was empty. It's not an apparition. It's not a ghost. Glenn might dream tonight about Patty. He might have such a vivid vision of Patty. He would think 
She was risen from the dead. That's possible. And he could start telling that. He could form a new religion. The Patty religion, if he wanted to. That's not the claim of the New Testament about this man. The grave was empty. And not only was the grave empty, but Jesus spent 40 days meeting individuals, little groups, big groups, putting himself forward, giving what Luke, the historian, called infallible proofs. Let me read it to you, Acts 1-3. To the apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now what you have to do, here you are, 2,000 years after that happened, and asking yourself, yeah, but how do we know Luke is reliable when he says that? Now, you've got to settle that in the same way that you settle all testimonies of the past before there was video and tape recording. And the only way is to take a book or some evidence, some artifact, and then ask, are there any pointers, are there any signs, are there any ways we can tell if this is an authentic witness? So you need to take this book and listen to these guys who wrote and study them and say, are there self-evidencing traits here that God was on these people to keep them telling the truth and to witness to us in such a way that the truth is compelling and self-evidently self-authenticating? you got to ask that. That's the way you treat all history. Before there was anything you could look at like a video. And even videos, you could argue, oh, they were tampered with, or they made it up, or something like that. So if you're going to have any confidence at all, any knowledge at all, you come to it that way. Jesus presented himself alive. How? He, let me read you an example. Just to show you that he's not a ghost. He said to them, as he appeared... This is at the end, just before he was taken up into heaven. Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me. He was touchable. And see, he was seeable. For a spirit that is a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it. These fellows were not gullible. These were ordinary skeptical fishermen just like you and I are. They couldn't believe it. While they still could not believe because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? To eat. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it, and he ate it before them. What's the point of that? Why did he eat fish? He ate fish to show that when God raised him from the dead, God defeated not just death as an idea, but death as a physical destructive reality. Did you know that 
creation was brought into being to last forever? Your body was created to last forever? The Christian doctrine is resurrection from the grave, not just leaving people in the grave and having bodiless souls floating around forever and ever. And Jesus rose from the dead to say, this is the kind of body that we will have. And here relativism really comes home. Noel and I on Thursday were driving down 35W, uh, going out to eat together on my day off, and we had on public radio station, and Lynn Neary was interviewing a Easter thing with John Dominic Crossan. Now, John Dominic Crossan is the head of the Jesus Seminar, where they vote on which statements of Jesus happened, with little black balls and white balls and red balls in a cup. And not many are left when they're done. A dozen or so things, Jesus said, make it through as historical. John Dominic Crossan does not believe all of what the church teaches about Jesus, to state it mildly. Now, Lynn Neary, forthright, aggressive, public radio interviewer, did the right thing. She began the interview with this straightforward question. Dr. Crossan, just tell us, did Jesus rise from the dead? And he said, this is an exact quote now because I almost drove off the road. <laughs> and Noel pushed the off button and said, we're going to turn this off. I said, no, 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 I just got to listen to this. He said, yes, 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 for Christians. That was his answer. And she knows how I respond to these things. So she tried to save us by turning the radio off. The rest of the trip down to Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> or don't call it that anymore, do they? What's the problem with that? Yes, he rose from the dead. As Christians make use of him and are inspired by him to feel hope for the future and get involved in the causes of justice. That's the way he unpacked it for the next 15 minutes or so. If you, this morning, join the cause of Christ in fighting back injustice in the world, he is risen. His body's in the grave. But his desires and his cause go on. Now that's what I mean by taking texts of Scripture, taking Scripture and just shaping them according to what you think is manageable in your philosophic worldview. People don't rise from the dead and therefore Jesus couldn't have either and so the resurrection must be some other thing. The last point I want to make is that um, this risen Christ can raise you and will raise you from the dead if God's Spirit is in you. I'll read the verse. Romans 8, 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, see the big if? He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life 
to your mortal bodies also. This is objective. This is not just kind of an idea here. This is truth in the future. Do you want to rise from the dead, be clothed with newness of life, live with God in infinite and increasing joy forever and ever, or do you want to rise from the dead and be clothed with a body fit for torment in hell forever? The body's going to last forever. The Bible is very clear. The just and the unjust rise. One to everlasting destruction and one to everlasting joy in the presence of God. So the closing question is this. Do you have the Spirit of God in you? Because the verse says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will raise you. Now, how can you receive the Spirit of God? Now, I'll read the answer. It's one answer from several ways of saying it in the Bible, all pointing to one thing, and this is, I think, the best and clearest answer. Let me read it to you from Galatians 3.5. If you're asking the question right now, okay, if that's true, that I need the Spirit of God within me in order to have the assurance that I will one day be His and be raised rather than be destroyed. How do I get the Spirit? Galatians 3.5 Does He who provides the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer in the context to that rhetorical question is very clear. So let me put it in a statement. He who provides the Spirit to you and works miracles among you does so not by the works of the law, but by hearing with faith. So the answer this morning of how you receive the Spirit of God, to receive Christ, is by listening to what I've said, this gospel, these truths, and believing. So let me just lift them up. Christ is an eternal, pre-existent, never coming into being, but always being God. Second, He became a man that He might thirdly die for sins, that he might fourthly rise from the dead, triumphant, that he might fifthly live forever with all authority in heaven and on earth, that he might sixthly raise you from the dead if the Spirit of God dwells in you. If God has created a window this morning with relativism pushed back so that these biblical claims can come and shine in your life, it may be that right now the Spirit is so at work that you see those truths as a better explanation for the world, a better explanation for your own needs, and a better hope of the future than any other worldview you've ever heard. Let's just bow for a minute in quietness as you ponder for just a second the implication of that for you and whether you want to deal with God earnestly about that. And I pray that you will. Let's just be quiet for a moment before we close.